Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Girl with the Hungry Eyes by Fritz Lieber Oh, right. I'll tell you why the girl gives me the creeps. Why I can't stand to go downtown and see the mob slavering up at her on the tower with that pop bottle or pack of cigarettes or whatever it is beside her. Why I hate to look at magazines anymore because I know she'll turn up somewhere in a brassiere or a bubble bath. Why I don't like to think of millions of Americans drinking in that poisonous half-smile. It's quite a story. More story than you're expecting. No, I haven't suddenly developed any long-haired indignation at the evils of advertising and the national glamour girl complex. That'd be a laugh for a man in my racket, wouldn't it? Though I think you'll agree that there's something a little perverted about trying to capitalise on sex that way. But it's okay with me. And I know we've had the face and the body and the look and what not else. So why shouldn't someone come along who sums it all up so completely that we have to call her the girl and blazon her on all the billboards from Times Square to Telegraph Hill? But the girl isn't like any of the others. She's unnatural. She's morbid. She's unholy. Oh, these are modern times, you say, and the sort of thing I'm hinting at went out with witchcraft. But you see, I'm not altogether sure myself what I'm hinting at, beyond a certain point. There are vampires, and vampires, and not all of them suck blood. And there were the murders, if they were murders. Besides, let me ask you this. Why, when America is obsessed with the girl, don't we find out more about her? Why doesn't she rate a time cover with a droll biography inside? Why hasn't there been a feature in Life or The Post, a profile in The New Yorker? Why hasn't Charm or Mademoiselle done a career saga? Not ready for it? Nuts. Why haven't the movie snapped her up? Why hasn't she been on Information, Please? Why don't we see her kissing candidates at political rallies? Why isn't she chosen queen of some sort of junk or other at a convention? Why don't we read about her tastes and hobbies, her views of the Russian situation? Why haven't the columnists interviewed her in a kimono on the top floor of the tallest hotel in Manhattan and told us who her boyfriends are? Finally, and this is the real killer, why hasn't she ever been drawn or painted? Oh, no, she hasn't. If you knew anything about commercial art, you'd know that. Every blessed one of those pictures was worked up from a photograph. Expertly, of course. They've got the top artists on it. But that's how it's done. And now, I'll tell you the why of all that. It's because from the top to the bottom of the whole world of advertising, news and business, there isn't a solitary soul who knows where the girl came from, where she lives, what she does, who she is, even what her name is. You heard me. What's more, 
not a single solitary soul ever sees her, except one poor damn photographer who's making more money off her than he ever hoped to in his life, and who's scared and miserable as hell every minute of the day. No, I haven't the faintest idea who he is, or where he has his studio. But I know there has to be such a man, and I'm morally certain he feels just like I said. Yes, I might be able to find her, if I tried. I'm not sure, though. By now, she probably has other safeguards. Besides, I don't want to. Oh, I'm off my rocker, am I? That sort of thing can't happen in the era of the atom. People can't keep out of sight that way, not even Garbo. Well, I happen to know they can. Because last year, I was that poor damn photographer I was telling you about. Yes, last year when the girl made her first poisonous splash right here in this big little city of ours. Yes, I know you weren't here last year, and you don't know about it. Even the girl had to start small. But if you hunted through the files of the local newspapers, you'd find some ads, and I might be able to locate you some of the old displays. I think Lovely Belt is still using one of them. I used to have a mountain of photos myself. Until I burned them. Yes, I made my cut off her. Nothing like what that other photographer must be making, but enough so it still bought this whiskey. She was funny about money. I'll tell you about that. But first, picture me then. I had a fourth-floor studio in that rat hole in the Hauser building, not far from Ardley Park. I'd been working at the Marsh Mason Studios until I'd gotten my belly full of it and decided to start in for myself. The Hauser building was awful. I'll never forget how the stairs creaked, but it was cheap, and there was a skylight. Business was lousy. I kept making the rounds of all the advertisers and agencies, and some of them didn't object to me too much personally. But my stuff never clicked. I was pretty near broke. I was behind on my rent. Hell, I didn't even have enough money to have a girl. It was one of those dark grey afternoons. The building was very quiet. I'd just finished developing some pics I was doing on speculation for lovely belt girdles and Budford's pool and playground. My model had left, a Miss Leon. She was a civics teacher at one of the high schools and modelled for me on the side, just lately on speculation too. After one look at the prints, I decided that Miss Leon probably wasn't just what Lovely Belt was looking for, or my photography either. I was about to call it a day. And then the street door slammed, four stories down, and there were steps on the stairs. And she came in. She was wearing a cheap, shiny black dress, black pumps, no stockings, and except that she had a grey cloth coat over one of them, those skinny arms of hers were bare. Her arms are pretty skinny, you know. Or can't you see things like that anymore? And then, the thin neck, the slightly gaunt, almost prim face, the tumbling mass of dark hair, and looking out from under it, the hungriest eyes in the world. 
That's the real reason she's plastered all over the country today, you know. Those eyes. Nothing vulgar, but just the same. They're looking at you with a hunger that's all sex. And something more than sex. That's what everybody's been looking for since the year one. Something a little more than sex. Well, boys, there I was, alone with the girl in an office that was getting shadowy in a nearly empty building, a situation that a million male Americans have undoubtedly pictured to themselves with various lush details. How was I feeling? Scared. I know sex can be frightening, that cold heart thumping when you're alone with a girl and you feel you're going to touch her. But if it was sex this time, it was overlaid with something else. At least, I wasn't thinking about sex. I remember that I took a backward step and that my hand jerked so that the photos I was looking at sailed to the floor. There was just the faintest dizzy feeling like something was being drawn out of me. Just a little bit. That was all. And then she opened her mouth and everything was back to normal. For a while. I see you're a photographer, mister, she said. Could you use a model? Her voice wasn't very cultivated. I doubted, I told her, picking up the pics. You see, I wasn't impressed. The commercial possibilities of her eyes hadn't registered on me yet, by a long shot. What have you done? Well, she gave me a vague sort of story, and I began to check her knowledge of model agencies and studios and rates and whatnot, and pretty soon I said to her, Look here, you've never modelled for a photographer in your life. You just walked in here cold. Well, she admitted that was more or less so. All along through our talk, I got the idea that she was feeling her way like someone in a strange place. Not that she was uncertain of herself, or of me, but just of the general situation. And you think anyone can model? I asked her pityingly. Sure, she said. Look, I said. A photographer can waste a dozen negatives trying to get one halfway human photo of an average woman. How many do you think he'd have to waste before I got a real catchy, glamorous photo of her? I think I could do it, she said. Well, I should have kicked her out right then. Maybe I admired the cool way she stuck to her dumb little guns. Maybe I was touched by her underfed look. More likely, I was feeling mean on account of the way my pictures had been snubbed by everybody and I wanted to take it out on her by showing her up. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot, I told her. I'm going to try a couple of shots of you. Understand it's strictly on spec. If somebody should ever want to use a photo of you, which is about one chance in two million, I'll pay you regular rates for your time. Not otherwise. She gave me a smile. The first. That's swell by me, she said. Well, I took three or four shots close-ups of her face since I didn't fancy her cheap dress, and at least she stood up to my sarcasm. Then I remembered I still had the lovely belt stuff, and I guessed the meanness was still working in me because I handed her a girdle and told her to go behind the screen and get into it, and she did, without getting flustered, as I'd expected. And since we'd gone that far, I figured we might as well shoot the beach scene to round it out. And that was that. All this time, I wasn't feeling anything particular one way or the other, except every once in a while, I get one of those faint, dizzy flashes 
and wonder if there was something wrong with my stomach, or if I could have been a little bit careless with my chemicals. Still, you know I think the uneasiness was in me all the while. I tossed her a card and pencil. Write your name and address and phone, I told her, and made for the darkroom. A little later she walked out. I didn't call any goodbyes. I was irked because she hadn't fussed around or seemed anxious about her poses or even thanked me, except for that one smile. I finished developing the negatives and made some prints, glanced at them, decided they weren't a great deal worse than Miss Leon. On impulse, I slipped them in with the pictures I was going to take on the rounds next morning. By now, I'd worked long enough, so I was a bit fagged and nervous, but I didn't dare waste enough money on liquor to help that. I wasn't very hungry. I think I went to a cheap movie. I didn't think of the girl at all, except maybe to wonder faintly why in my present womanless state I hadn't made a pass at her. She had seemed to belong to a, well, distinctly more approachable social strata than Miss Leon. But then, of course, there were all sorts of arguable reasons for my not doing that. Next morning I made the rounds. My first step was Munch's brewery. They were looking for a Munch girl. Papa Munch had a sort of affection for me, though he razzed my photography. He had a good natural judgment about that too. Fifty years ago, he might have been one of the shoestring boys who made Hollywood. Right now, he was out in the plant, pursuing his favourite occupation. He put down the beaded schooner, smacked his lips, gabbled something technical to someone about hops, wiped his fat hands on his big apron he was wearing, and grabbed my thin stack of pictures. He was about halfway through, making noises with his tongue and teeth, when he came to her. I kicked myself for even having stuck her in. That's her, he said. The photography's not so hot, but that's the girl. It was all decided. I wonder now why Papa Munch sensed what the girl had right away while I didn't. I think it was because I saw her first in the flesh, if that's the right word. At the time, I just felt faint. Who is she? he asked. Uh, one of my new models. I tried to make it casual. Bring her out tomorrow morning, he told me, and your stuff, and your stuff, will photograph her here. Here, don't look so sick, he added. Have some beer. Well, I went away telling myself it was just a fluke, so that she'd probably blow it tomorrow with her inexperience and so on. Just the same, when I reverently laid my next stack of pictures on Mr. Fitch of Lovely Belt's rose-coloured blotter, I had hers on top. Mr. Fitch went through the motions of being an art critic. He leaned over backward, squinted his eyes, waved his long fingers and said, Hmm, what do you think, Miss Willow? Here, in this light, of course. The photograph doesn't show the bias cut, and perhaps we could use the lovely belt imp instead of the angel. Still, the girl. Uh, come over here, Bins. More finger-waving. I want a married man's reaction. He couldn't hide the fact that he was hooked. Exactly the same thing happened at Budford's Pool and Playground, except that Da Costa didn't need a married man's say-so. Hot stuff, he said, sucking his lips. Oh boy, you photographers! I hot-footed it back to the office and grabbed up the card I'd given her to put down her name and address. It was blank. I don't mind telling you 
that the next five days were about the worst I ever went through in an ordinary way. When next morning rolled around and I still hadn't got hold of her, I had to start stalling. Uh, she's sick, I told Papa Munch over the phone. She at a hospital? He asked me. Uh, nothing that serious, I told him. Get her out here then. What's a little headache? So sorry, I can't. Papa Munch got suspicious. You really got this girl? Of course I have. Well, I don't know. I'd think it was some New York model, except I recognize your lousy photography. I laughed. Well, look, you get her here tomorrow morning, you hear? I'll try. Try nothing. You get her out here. He didn't know half of what I tried. I went round to all the model and employment agencies. I did some slick detective work at the photographic and art studios. I used up some of my last dimes putting advertisements in all three papers. I looked at high school yearbooks and at employee photos in local house organs. I went to restaurants and drug stores looking at waitresses and to dime stores and department stores looking at clerks. I watched the crowds coming out of the movie theatres. I roamed the streets. Evenings, I spent quite a bit of time along Pickup Row. Somehow that seemed the right place. The fifth afternoon, I knew I was licked. Papa Munch's deadline, he'd given me several, but this was it, was due to run out at six o'clock. Mr. Fitch had already cancelled. I was at the studio window, looking out at Ardley Park. She walked in. I'd gone over this moment so often in my mind that I had no trouble putting on my act. Even the faint dizzy feeling didn't throw me off. Hello, I said, hardly looking at her. Hello, she said. Not discouraged yet? No. It didn't sound uneasy or defiant. It was just a statement. I snapped a look at my watch, got up and said curtly, Look, uh, here, I'm going to give you a chance. There's a client of mine looking for a girl, your general type. If you do a real good job, you might break into the modelling business. We can see him this afternoon if we hurry, I said. I picked up my stuff. Come on. The next time, if you expect favours, don't forget to leave your phone number. Uh-uh, she said, not moving. What do you mean, I said. I'm not going out to see any client of yours. The hell you aren't, I said, you little nut. I'm giving you a break. She shook her head slowly. You're not fooling me, baby. You're not fooling me at all. They want me. And she gave me the second smile. At the time, I thought she must have seen my newspaper ad. Now, I'm not so sure. And now I'll tell you how we're going to work, she went on. You aren't going to have my name or address or phone number. Nobody is. And we're going to do all the pictures right here. Just you and me. You can imagine the roar I raised at that. I was everything. Angry, sarcastic, patiently explanatory, off my nut, threatening, pleading. I would have slapped her face off, except it was photographic capital. In the end, all I could do was phone Papa Munch and tell him her conditions. I knew I didn't have a chance, but I had to take it. He gave me a really angry brawling out and said, No, several times, and hung up. It didn't worry her. We'll start shooting at ten o'clock tomorrow, she said. It was just like her, using that corny line from the movie magazines. About midnight, Papa Munch called me up. 
I don't know what insane asylum you're renting this girl from, he said, but I'll take her. Come round tomorrow morning and I'll try to get it through your head just how I want the pictures and I'm glad I got you out of bed. After that, it was a breeze. Even Mr. Fitch reconsidered and after taking two days to tell me it was quite impossible, he accepted the conditions too. Of course, you're all under the spell of the girl so you can't understand how much self-sacrifice it represented on Mr. Fitch's part when he agreed to forego supervising the photography of my model in the lovely belt imp or vixen or whatever it was we finally used. Next morning she turned up on time according to her schedule and we went to work. I'll say one thing for her. She never got tired and she never kicked at the way I fussed over shots. I got along okay except... I still had that feeling of something being shoved away gently. Maybe you felt it just a little, looking at her picture. When we finished, I found there were still more rules. It was about the middle of the afternoon. I started with her to get a sandwich and coffee. Mm-mm, she said. I'm going down alone. And look, baby, if you ever try to follow me, if you ever so much as stick your head out of that window when I go... You can hire yourself another model. You can imagine how all this crazy stuff strained my temper and my imagination. I remember opening the window after she was gone. I waited a few minutes first and standing there getting some fresh air and trying to figure out what could be behind it. Whether she was hiding from the police or was somebody's ruined daughter or maybe had got the idea it was smart to be temperamental or more likely Papa Munch was right and she was partly nuts but I had my pictures to finish up. Looking back, it's amazing to think how fast her magic began to take hold of the city after that. Remembering what came after, I'm frightened of what's happening to the whole country, and maybe the world. Yesterday I read something in time about the girl's picture turning up on billboards in Egypt. The rest of my story will help show you why I'm frightened in that big, general way. But I have a theory too that helps explain, though it's one of those things that's beyond that certain point. It's about the girl. I'll give it to you in a few words. You know how modern advertising gets everybody's mind set in the same direction, wanting the same things, imagining the same things. And you know the psychologists aren't so sceptical of telepathy as they used to be. Add up the two ideas. Suppose the identical desires of millions of people focused on one telepathic person, say a girl, shaped her in their image. Imagine her knowing the hiddenmost hungers of millions of men. Imagine her seeing deeper into those hungers than the people that had them, seeing the hatred and the wish for death behind the lust. Imagine her shaping herself in that complete image keeping herself as aloof as marble, yet imagine the hunger she might feel in answer to their hunger. But that's getting a long way from the facts of my story, and some of those facts are darn solid, like money. We made money. That was the funny thing I was going to tell you. I was afraid the girl was going to hold me up. She really had me over a barrel, you know. But she didn't ask for anything but the regular rates. 
Later on, I insisted on pushing more money at her, a whole lot, but she always took it with that same contemptuous look, as if she were going to toss it down the first drain when she got outside. Maybe she did. At any rate, I had money. For the first time in months, I had money enough to get drunk, buy new clothes, take taxicabs. I could make a play for any girl I wanted to. I only had to pick. And so, of course, I had to go and pick. But first, let me tell you about Papa Munch. Papa Munch wasn't the first of the boys to try to meet my model, but I think he was the first to really go soft on her. I could watch the change in his eyes as he looked at her pictures. They began to get sentimental, reverent. Mama Munch had been dead for two years. He was smart about the way he planned it. He got me to drop some information which told him when she came to work, and then one morning he came pounding up the stairs a few minutes before. i got to see her, Dave, he told me. I argued with him. I kidded him. I explained he didn't know just how serious she was about her crazy ideas. I even pointed out he was cutting both our throats. I even amazed myself by bawling him out. But he didn't take any of it his usual way. He just kept repeating, But Dave, I've got to see her. The street door slammed. That's her, I said, lowering my voice. You've got to get out. He wouldn't, so I shoved him in the darkroom. Keep quiet, I whispered. I'll tell her I can't work today. I knew he'd try to look at her and probably come busting in, but there wasn't anything else I could do. The footsteps came to the fourth floor, but she never showed at the door. I got uneasy. Get that bum out of there, she yelled suddenly from beyond the door, not very loud, but in her commonest voice. I'm going up to the next landing, she said, and if that fat-bellied bum doesn't march straight down the street, he'll never get another picture of me except spitting in his lousy beer. Papa Munch came out of the darkroom. He was white. He didn't look at me as he went out. He never looked at her pictures in front of me again. That was Papa Munch. Now it's me I'm telling you about. I talked around the subject with her. I hinted. Eventually, I made my pass. She lifted my hand off her as if it were a damp rag. No, baby, she said. This is working time. But afterward, I pressed. The rules still hold, and I got what I think was the fifth smile. It's hard to believe, but she never budged an inch from that crazy line. I mustn't make a pass at her in the office, because our work was very important, and she loved it, and there mustn't be any distractions. And I couldn't see her anywhere else, because if I tried to, I'd never snap another picture of her. And all this with more money coming in all the time, and me never so stupid as to think my photography had anything to do with it. Of course, I wouldn't have been human if I hadn't made more passes, but they always got the wet rag treatment, and there weren't any more smiles. I changed. I went sort of crazy and light-headed, only sometimes I felt my head was going to burst, and I started to talk to her all the time about myself. It was like being in a constant delirium that never interfered with business. I didn't pay any attention to that dizzy feeling. It seemed natural. I'd walk around and for a moment the reflector would look like a sheet of white-hot steel, or the shadows would seem like armies of moths, or the camera would be a big black coal car. 
but the next instant they come all right again. I think sometimes I was scared to death of her. She'd seemed the strangest, most horrible person in the world, but other times, and I talked, it didn't matter what I was doing, lighting her, posing her, fussing with props, snapping my pictures, or where she was on the platform behind the screen, relaxing with the magazine. I kept up a steady gab. I told her everything I knew about myself. I told her about my first girl. I told her about my brother Bob's bicycle. I told her about running away on a freight and the licking pa gave me when I came home. I told her about shipping to South America in the blue sky at night. I told her about Betty. I told her about my mother dying of cancer. I told her about being beaten up in a fight in an alley behind a bar. I told her about Mildred. I told her about the first picture I ever sold. I told her how Chicago looked from a sailboat. I told her about the longest drunk I was ever on. I told her about Marsh Mason. I told her about Gwen. I told her about how I met Papa Munch. I told her about hunting her. I told her about how I felt now. She never paid the slightest attention to what I said. I couldn't even tell if she heard me. It was when we were getting our first nibble from national advertisers that I decided to follow her when she went home. Wait, I can place it better than that. Something you remember from the out-of-town papers, those maybe murders I mentioned. I think there were six. I say maybe, because the police could never be sure they weren't heart attacks. But there's bound to be suspicion when attacks happen to people whose hearts have been okay, and always at night, when they're alone and away from home, and there's a question of what they were doing. The six deaths created one of those mystery poisoner scares, and afterwards there was a feeling that they hadn't really stopped, but were being continued in a less suspicious way. That's one of the things that scares me now. But at the time my only feeling was relief that I decided to follow her. I made her work until dark one afternoon. I didn't need any excuses, we were snowed under with orders. I waited until the street door slammed, then I ran down. I was wearing rubber-soled shoes I'd slipped on a dark coat she'd never see me in, and a dark hat. I stood in the doorway until I spotted her. She was walking by Ardley Park toward the heart of town. It was one of those warm fall nights. I followed her on the other side of the street. My idea for tonight was just to find out where she lived. That would give me a hold on her. She stopped in front of a display window of Everly's department store, standing back from the flow. She stood there, looking in. I remembered we'd done a big photograph of her for Everly's, to make a flat model for the lingerie display. That was what she was looking at. At the time, it seemed all right to me that she should adore herself, if that's what she was doing. When people passed, she'd turn away a little or drift back farther into the shadows. Then a man came by alone. I couldn't see his face very well, but he looked middle-aged. He stopped and stood, looking in the window. She came out of the shadows and stepped up beside him. How would you boys feel if you were looking at a poster of the girl and suddenly... She was there, beside you, her arm linked with yours. This fellow's reaction shows as plain as day. A crazy dream had come to life for him. They talked for a moment, then he waved a taxi to the curb. They got in, 
and drove off. I got drunk that night. It was almost as if she'd known I was following her and had picked that way to hurt me. Maybe she had. Maybe this was the finish. But the next morning, she turned up at the usual time, and I was back in the delirium only now with some new angles added. That night, when I followed her, she picked a spot under a streetlight opposite one of the Munch Girl billboards. Now it frightens me to think of her lurking that way. After about twenty minutes, a convertible slowed down, going past her, backed up, swung into the curb. I was closer this time. I got a good look at the fellow's face. He was a little younger, about my age. Next morning, the same face looked up at me from the front page of the paper. The convertible had been found parked on a side street. He had been in it. As in the other maybe murders, the cause of death was uncertain. All kinds of thoughts were spinning in my head that day, but there were only two things I knew for sure, that I'd got the first real offer from a national advertiser and that I was going to take the girl's arm and walk down the stairs with her when we quit work. She didn't seem surprised. You know what you're doing, she said. I know, she smiled. I was wondering when you'd get round to it. I began to feel good. I was kissing everything goodbye but I had my arm around hers. It was another of those warm fall evenings we cut across into Ardley Park. It was dark there, but all around the sky was a sallow pink from the advertising signs. We walked for a long time in the park. She didn't say anything, and she didn't look at me, but I could see her lips twitching, and after a while her hand tightened on my arm. We stopped. We'd been walking across the grass. She dropped down and pulled me after her. She put her hands on my shoulders. I was looking down at her face. It was the faintest sallow pink from the glow in the sky. The hungry eyes were dark smudges. I was fumbling with her blouse. She took my hand away, not like she had in the studio. I don't want that, she said. First, I'll tell you what I did afterward. Then... I'll tell you why I did it. Then I'll tell you what she said. What I did was run away. I don't remember all of that because I was dizzy and the pink sky was swinging against the dark trees, but after a while I staggered into the lights of the street. The next day I closed up the studio. The telephone was ringing when I locked the door and there were unopened letters on the floor. I never saw the girl again, in the flesh, if that's the right word. I did it because I didn't want to die. I didn't want the life drawn out of me. There are vampires and vampires, and the ones that suck blood aren't the worst. If it hadn't been for the warning of those dizzy flashes and Papa Munch and the face in the morning paper... I'd have gone the way the others did, but I realised what I was up against while there was still time to tear myself away. I realised that wherever she came from, whatever shaped her, she's the quintessence of the horror behind the bright billboard. She's the smile that tricks you into throwing away your money and your life. She's the eyes that lead you on and on and then show you death. She's the creature you give everything for, 
and never really get. She's the being that takes everything you've got and gives nothing in return. When you yearn towards her face on the billboards, remember that. She's the lure. She's the bait. She's the girl. And this is what she said. I want you. I want your high spots. I want everything that's made you happy and everything that's hurt you bad. I want your first girl. I want the shiny bicycle. I want that licking. I want the pinhole camera. I want Betty's legs. I want the blue sky filled with stars. I want your mother's death. I want your blood on the cobblestones. I want Mildred's mouth. I want the first picture you sold. I want the lights of Chicago. I want the gin. I want Gwen's hands. I want your wanting me. I want your life. Feed me, baby. Feed me. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back. Well, that maybe woke you up, that, that last uh, horrible bit. So I don't normally start by talking about my voice, but I am today. I chose to do this story in an English accent, even though it, was a very, it is a very American story. It's written in that kind of noir style, that Jimmy Cagney style that was later copied in things like LA Confidential, whereby we have the hard-boiled narrator, you little nut, I should slap the chops off you. And I could have done it like that, but I didn't. I wasn't massively happy doing it in an English accent. And I, I, I used the pronunciation clerks rather than clerks. I did an American word in an English pronunciation. And then I said schedule rather than schedule. So I did a, an English pronunciation or a British pronunciation. And then I chose to do that horrible bit at the end. No doubt there'll be some comments about that. But... I wanted to scare you. There you go. I wanted to scare you. I admit it. There we are. Let's talk a bit about Fritz Lieber, not my voice. So Fritz Reuter Lieber was born in 1910 in Chicago, Illinois. And his mother and father were both actors and they had a Shakespearean company and they toured the USA. And he actually spent a lot of his youth touring with them. So he was very um, artistic from an early age. And he actually did some acting when he graduated from his college. And his father was relatively successful and was in a few movies. He went to college in 1932. Well, he got his degree in 1932 in psychology, so his interest in psychology is important. Later on, after that, he went to study to be an Episcopal minister, but he didn't complete that, and he went back and did a postgrad in philosophy. And he did some academic editing. All this time he was acting. And he was, he'd written a few stories. And then in 1936, he was in touch with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who encouraged him. And it seems that after that, he started to write more. Now, Fritz Lieber's probably best known for his sword and sorcery series of Fafard. I don't know how to say that, really. And the Grey Mauser. Grey Mauser. The Grey Mauser. These wizards and swords and things. And he was one of the fathers of the sword and sorcery genre along with people like Mike, Michael Moorcock and Robert E. Howard. Now, I've got to admit that Lieber was a big favourite of mine in my mid-teens, my early to mid-teens when I discovered Moorcock and people like that, and I was really into sword and sorcery, and then later into Dungeons and & Dragons. And interestingly, Fritz's money in his later years came primarily from Dungeons & Dragons because TSR, the company that produced Dungeons & Dragons, licensed his 
characters. So he, he earned um, a relatively comfortable living from that. And that was important for him because he, the latter part of his life, he lived in poverty. He lived in a hotel in San Francisco. And, it, you know, it was a pretty run-down place. It was full of books and a manual typewriter. He was also had troubles a lot of his life with alcohol. He was an alcoholic and took a lot of barbiturates. But despite that, he's a bright guy and very prolific writer. He married his wife, John Quill Stevens, I think in 1936, and she died in 69. And then he lived sort of on his own. And then he died himself in the 90s when he was 81, because he was born in 1910. So it was going to be 1991, wasn't it, when he died? 1992, actually, he died. And he married a lifelong friend or a long-term friend in the last year of his life. So that's kind of romantic when he was 81 or 80. So that was, that was romantic. I, I liked him. I liked his sword and sorcery stuff because it was later on, I think it would have been called grimdark because it, it, it wasn't Tolkienian. It was um, much more down to earth, sort of grubby, as you might imagine, if, if sword and sorcery really was like this, it really existed, then you can imagine people would do it like this. It wouldn't be fantastically heroic like Tolkien, although I like Tolkien as well. But um, they would be, these guys are down to earth. They're looking for money. They're looking for deals. Glenn Cook's The Black Company is in this vein. It's another favourite of mine. Anyway, this has nothing to do with the girl with the hungry eyes, which is, of course, a horror story set in that kind of, not Mad Men, because it's 49, so it's slightly before that, but it's sort of that world, isn't it? And it is this uh, wise-cracking or hard-boiled sort of genre, the Raymond Chandler detectives on the mean streets of uh, the Bay Area. And uh, yeah, so it has all of that. And, and the, the, the girl, now she is a femme fatale. And funnily enough, there's a, a series of books by, of graphic novels by Ed Brubaker or Brubaker called Fatal, which is about a girl like this. The twist in that story is that she knows that she devours men, but she tries not to. Whereas our girl here, what is she? She is a vampire, obviously. He talks about vampires and not all vampires suck blood. And she's a psychic vampire and she has the power of her eyes. And she's not actually a real person because she just appears one day as if he conjures her up, as if his desire for success brought her in there. And she doesn't have a name. She doesn't, have, she doesn't live anywhere. She has no history. She's never done anything. It's as if she was conjured and stepped in, fully formed. And she is, as he talks about, a personification of lust, really. And perhaps a payback for lust. So he does a couple of things here. First of all, he talks about her as a psychic vampire. So on that level, she is simply this um, monster who eats men, lustful men, and they get what they deserve because their lust makes them weak. So I think that's an also important key point that giving into our passions weakens us. That is really important because remember that Fritz Lieber's first degree was in psychology and he was interested in philosophy. He was influenced by the work of Carl Jung, and you'll have heard me talk about Jung, and also um, Joseph Campbell. Now, Joseph Campbell was a mythologist. He was Again, a Jungian, but he looked at the study of myths and attempted to categorize and codify and put them into some sort of taxonomic system. And he came up with a thing called the hero's journey. And he said that basically in all stories, the hero's journey and the various stages of the hero's journey. Now, Hollywood's really got into that. And most movies now, 
use the hero's journey. Anyway, we know that Lieber was interested in things like this, was interested in Campbell, was interested in Jung. Now, a key concept in Jungian psychology is the archetypes. So basically Jung says that we have instincts and drives, but we personify them. So they may be biological in origin, but we see them as people because we are social beings and we tend to relate to everything as if it were people, you know, the wind, dogs. Um, yeah, we do. That, that's how we're designed. So our instincts are personified as people. And, and one of the key figures for a man is the anima. And she represents the female. So the female to a man is many things. It's his mother, but it's also his lover. I guess we're talking about straight men here. Jung was very interesting in that he, from, he was the first person who said that we're all basically a mix of male and female. We're not actually male and female. So he was the first one to, to, to say that there's nothing pathological about having female and masculine components, because we all do. Anyway, what he did say was when we become possessed by one of these archetypal figures. So we're talking about the anima here, but there are others. When we become completely identified and under the spell of, we, this is weakness. This is not to be desired. We are not rational human beings anymore. We are slaves to our passions. And of course, um, being a slave and showing that weakness, slave isn't the right word there, being, being overpowered, not being morally strong enough to resist the spell of the anima is a, a sin. It's pun a punishable sin. And what she's doing is she's ensnaring these men and punishing them because they have become ensnared by her. So on the one hand, you may see that as a little unfair, but so that's, so as a vampire, so there's a vampire story, there's the psychological anima possession, you know, the man, the men becoming ensnared by their own lusts by the personification of the woman that just overpowers them. And the third thing is, of course, and Lieber makes this clear at the end, she kind of represents a personification. A sim she is a symbol of the advertising business, selling us things we don't need. But again, I think he also points out our weakness in doing that because the advertising, age, the advertising business only exists because we are susceptible to it. If we, if we wasn't able to persuade us to buy things we didn't need, it wouldn't exist. So it is again our inability to stop our covetousness and our sinful natures. Again, so it strikes me that the fact he also was interested in becoming a Christian minister is um, relevant here as well. He, he was an interesting guy. I mean, I, I just remember now that he, he um, was a pacifist, but when the Second World War broke out, he went to work for an aircraft corporation because he was so opposed to fascism. Yes, yeah, so we have the three levels. We have the girl as vampire, simple monster story. We have the girl as psychological possession, and we have the girl as a personification of late capitalism, making us buy stuff we don't need, and the basic dissatisfaction that gives us ultimately, we buy these things to satisfy this emptiness and it never does. And we keep having to buy more and more and more and more. So again, I suppose that's right. But there's definitely in this story an idea of being punished for a sin. And of course, when we talk about screenwriting, we talked about how Hollywood has been taken over by the idea of the hero's journey. You may also have heard me talk about Blake Snyder. Now, Blake Snyder, the late Blake Snyder, was a Hollywood screenwriter. 
And he basically, again, in a similar way to Joseph Campbell, looked at all the stories and said, well, you know, you can actually break them down into a very few sub-stories. There are only so many types of stories. And one of his stories, which is behind most horror movies and horror stories, is the monster in the house. So how the scenario goes is somebody commits a sin and this allows the monster in. Yeah. So the monster in the house has a monster which is which comes to punish sin. And in Blake Snyder's version, the hero must try and overcome the monster. The other, the other interesting thing about this story, The Girl with the Hungry Eyes, is that she appears to our man Dave, the photographer, the down at hill photographer, in his hour of need, and then gives him success. And she doesn't really want anything from him. Not only that, she, though he's the only man to ever see her, in the flesh and live. She, she seems to not want to kill him. She tries to protect him. She smiles at him. And eventually when things lead their course and it becomes inevitable, he's going to make a pass at her. She goes to the park with him and when he fumbles with her blouse, she knocks his hand away. She doesn't want it. It's almost as if she doesn't want to kill him. She's quite happy to kill all the others. But there's something about Dave that she doesn't, and she allows... Dave to escape, and he's the only one, as far as we know, that does escape. So what's that about? Why should she protect Dave? Dave, I suppose, is the one who sees through it. Dave is the one who is not consumed by his lust, because at the end he nearly is. He fumbles with a blouse, after all. But then in that instant, he is able to see her as a devouring creature. Whereas the others presumably never get, never do that. So if we jump back to the psychology of it, remember I said that for Jung, the great sin was to be overpowered and identified with these archetypes, in this case, the anima, the female archetype. And the, the task of humanity in Jungian terms, individuation, is not to be identified with these powerful unconscious processes but to actually to be able to sit back and not be driven by them. So it is what Dave achieves. He's able not to be overpowered. Although you could argue it is simply one drive, that of fear overcoming lust, you know. So you could be less kind and say that in the last moment, Dave's lust is trumped by his fear and he runs away. But I do like to think that he had some insight into this. Now, we can say something about how masculine a story this is. She's the only, the girl is the only woman in it. And she's not even really a woman. She's a symbol. Some of the reading was slightly uncomfortable in that this idea that it might be appropriate for him to slap the chops off her. It, it is very much of its period. It's the sort of thing that Jimmy Cagney and all of those would have done. And they would have slapped the hysterical woman, wouldn't they? But it's not, it doesn't sit very nicely now. And also this idea that um, all red-blooded American males would have made a pass at her, basically, whether she wanted to or not. So I know we have had the Me Too revelations. Most of my family are women, in fact. Yeah, most, most of my close family are women. I have two daughters, I have a partner and I have a mother. I hear from my partner and my daughters how men take liberties, really. I never, I didn't know this. Honestly, you may think I'm naive. But the girls would tell me how, when they were just 15 and 16, how men would whistle at them and call at them when I wasn't with them. But when I was with them, never happened. And because none of the men who've been my friends 
I've never observed them do anything like that. And I would never do anything like that. I know he sound pious, but it's true. I wasn't brought up to be like that. Yeah, and going back to the girl with the hungry eyes, it's it's taken for granted that a man will make a sexual advance to to any woman he's alone with, and you're like, wow, you know. And Sheila would tell me about when she was a young woman, uh, they would she'd be warned by her, the other women, oh, don't go into the stationery cupboard with him, or watch his hands and things like that. That was like acceptable. Um, you know, Sheila's luckily quite strong and able to look after herself, and I think she told me how she told a couple of them to behave themselves or they'd suffer. You know, anyway, anyway, I've digressed. In a sense, I've digressed, but this is another of the themes of the story, isn't it? We have the power of advertising. You could see that as the vanity and emptiness of capitalism. We, we could talk, look at it in a psychological way. Uh, we could look at it in a moral way. This is about sins. We can look at it because it says something about the relationship of men and women. And that actually neatly summarises the story. It is, it, it is possible with a good story, it is possible to see tons and oodles of things jumping out that are relevant, you know, themes and relevancies. And we bring our eyes to them and we see things that other people didn't because we, we've got our own histories. Somebody else who isn't interested in those particular things, for example, may not be interested in Dungeons and Dragons. Imagine that. I find it very hard to imagine, but there we are. Um, yeah, you know, so there we are. So that's why it's a good story, because there's loads, there's loads in it. When you write stuff, you want an audience. You don't want to just sit in your room mumbling the words to yourself. So this is why I do it, really, because it's something about connecting with an audience, which has been fantastically successful, and I'm massively grateful to basically the internet and people like YouTube, Google, and Apple, and Spotify, and all these people for, for enabling me to have an audience like this. So this is fantastic. But be because it was a learning process, I was very conscious. I didn't want to alienate my audience. And this leads to some kind of tightrope walking. On the one hand, you have things you want to do. So I was quite keen on doing video stories. There would be elements I put in my stories and, and people wouldn't like them. And then I was like, oh, I better hadn't do that. You know, the famous dog story, but there's loads of others as well. Um, it, the One of my stories had some, the F word in it and some people didn't, you know, got really offended by that. Some people don't like me talking at the end of, of the story. Some people do. And the issue is, ultimately, you've got to do it. You've got to do it your own way. And you've just got to say, this is what I do. And if you like it, that's really great. We've, we can have a relationship. But if you, if you don't like it, that's also great. There are, there are other places to go and eat. If I liken myself to a restaurant, which I hadn't done just until that moment, I'd never really seen myself as a restaurant, but now I think about it. Mm, anyway, so that's it. So I'm basically going to do what I'm going to do, and I will keep some audience, and I will lose some audience, and that's, that's just okay, because otherwise I'm not actually being honest and true to myself, so I will continue to do what I do. And for those of you like that, I'm really, really delighted, honestly to have you on board. Anyway, so I want to thank everybody for their support because there is a there is a band of people who actually support me through Patreon and in other ways, buying me coffees and things. This enables me to cut down my work. I've been able to cut my psychiatric nursing work to three days a week, although I do some extra work as well. But that is totally because of your support, totally because of your support. And that now allows me to write more stories, to narrate more stories, to edit more stories, to produce more stories. So this is, this is what I want. This is my dream and you're making it happen. 
I haven't been doing so many stories recently because I've been building bookshelves. We've moved finally, and I've got a fantastic little studio office, whatever you call it, in the attic. And it's got all my things in it, all my books and all my computers and all sorts of stuff, cameras, microphones, pictures, journals. I'm looking around. It's got a nice rug that I've got in Glastonbury. It's got a plastic, well, rubber, I think probably bat for Halloween, although we probably stay up there a lot longer than Halloween. It's got some of Imogen's pictures, got pictures of my girls and my mum and a clipped print. Anyway, there we are. I have rambled, but listen, uh, I really like that story and I hope you did too. I hope you're all well and thank you again for listening because honestly, as I say, I, I, I need you. I need you as an audience and thank you for your support. Okay. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?